Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratty. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. He doesn't have a bipartisan bill. Nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Nepogratic, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, July 22, 2014. I'll begin this week with a bill that would increase low-income housing tax credits, new market tax credits, and historic tax credits for disaster areas. I'll also discuss some long-term deficit and national debt projections recently released by the Congressional Budget Office. And I'll alert listeners to some updates to two of Novogratz and Company's online mapping tools. In our new markets tax credit section, I share an internal revenue service request for comments on new market tax credit regulations, also a report on the use of new market tax credits in rural areas, and the status of a California bill that would create a California state new market tax credit program. In our local housing tax credit section, I alert listeners to a request for comments on Form 8823, the low-income housing tax credit non-compliance reporting form. I also check in on the Housing Trust Fund and announce the opening of the nomination round for the Journal of Tax Credits Developments of Distinction Awards. In our Renewable Energy Tax Credit segment, I share a report that found that, not too surprisingly, renewing the investment and production tax credits would increase renewable energy projects. In our Historic Tax Credit segment, I have updates from Wisconsin where a program moratorium has been partially lifted, and from North Carolina, where the historic preservation and development communities are waiting to hear the fate of the state's historic tax credit. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, I'd like to alert you to a bill that was introduced on Friday, July 11th. The bill is called the National Disaster Tax Relief Act of 2014. It's similar to the Hurricane Sandy-related disaster relief bills that have been introduced over the last couple of years. This bill, though, would affect areas declared major disaster areas in 2012, 2013, and 2014. It includes additional funding for the New Markets Tax Credit, Long Housing Tax Credit, and Historic Tax Credit. Specifically, it would provide an additional $500 million in annual New Market Tax Credit allocations for calendar years 2013 through 2016. The credits would be awarded to community development entities to make qualified investments in federally declared disaster areas. The bill would also increase the amount of local housing tax credits available for disaster areas. In 2014, states with federally declared disaster areas would receive either $8 for every person in the disaster area or an additional 50% of its credit ceiling, whichever is greater. The bill would also provide additional historic tax credits to properties in disaster areas. Renovations that qualify for the 10% historic tax credit rate would receive a 13% rate. And renovations that qualify for the 20% credit rate would receive a 26% credit rate. These, of course, for qualified rehabilitation expenditures. Now, the bill, H.R. 5082, was sent to the House Ways and Means Committee for discussion. You can find a copy of the bill online at the New Market Tax Credit Resource Center. In other general news, the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, has updated their long-term budget projections. 
the CBO issued this updated long-term budget outlook on July 15th. This update estimates the budget deficit and national debt that would result under current laws. Now, looking at the federal debt picture, the CBO said that the federal government currently owes an amount of debt equal to about 74% of gross domestic product, or GDP. If current laws remain in place, federal debt would actually decline slightly relative to annual GDP outlook, or annual GDP, during the next few years. But the debt would rise to about 78% of GDP by the end of 2024. That's about 10 years away. And 25 years from now, in 2039, federal debt would exceed gross domestic product under current budget outlook. And from there, the debt would simply continue to rise. Now, regarding annual deficits, from 2015 through 2018, the CBO estimates that spending would result in an annual deficit of about 25 to 3% of GDP. However, by 2025, the annual federal deficit will have grown to about 4% of GDP. The CBO said that the majority of the annual budget deficit would come from health care programs and Social Security. As such, it suggested that policymakers pass legislation to curb spending in those areas. Now, barring these two programs, all other federal benefits and services would make up a smaller percentage of annual GDP than at any other point in more than 70 years. It'll be interesting to see what effect the CBO's projections might have on the tax reform debate that's taking place in Congress. And I'll bring you an update on that tax reform debate in next week's podcast. In other news, I wanted to let you know that the loan housing tax credit and the new market tax credit mapping tools have been updated. The tools now include the 2014 distressed and underserved non-metropolitan middle-income geographies. Now, why do you care about that? Well, banks and other finance institutions can receive community reinvestment net consideration for investments in these areas. These mapping tools allow you, a user, to review data on existing local housing tax credit developments and new market tax credit projects and to identify whether or not proposed projects are in these areas. You can find the local housing tax credit mapping tool at the Affordable Housing Resource Center and the new market tax credit mapping tool can be found at the New Markets Tax Credit Resource Center. In New Markets Tax Credit news, I begin with a request for comments about the New Markets Tax Credit Program. Last week, the Internal Revenue Service published in the Federal Register a notice inviting comments concerning existing federal regulation TD-9171 related to New Markets Tax Credits. This regulation finalizes the rules relating to the New Market Tax Credit under Internal Revenue Section 45D, and it replaces the temporary regulations that expired December 23, 2004. There are no changes proposed to existing regulations at this time, and the finalized rule is the same one that the program has been operating under for the last decade. Rest assured, the New Market Task Working Group will be submitting comments. Written comments are due on or before September 15, 2014. To read the request for comment, go to www.newmarketscredits.com. And if you have any further questions regarding the notice, I encourage you to contact my partner, Brad Elphick, in our Atlanta, Georgia office. In other New Market Tax Credit news, last week, the New Markets Tax Credit Coalition released a report 
discussing how the New Market Tester Program has spurred inve private investment in rural communities. The report is titled, New Markets Tax Credit, Creating Economic Opportunity in Rural America. The New Market Tester Coalition, as you probably know, is a national organization that advocates for the New Market Tax Credit Program, and I do sit on the board. The report analyzes job creation and investment trends of the New Market Tax Credit in rural America between 2003 and 2011. During that time, the New Market Tax Credit has delivered $3.5 billion in capital to non-metro census tracts. It also leveraged an additional $3.5 billion from other sources. That's a total of $7 billion in capital investment to more than 600 rural businesses. These investments created more than 67,000 jobs, which includes nearly 47,000 full-time jobs and more than 20,000 construction jobs. Furthermore, the tax credit, according to the report, has generated nearly 19,000 jobs in towns with 5,000 or fewer residents. The report also identifies how the new market tax credit is helping rural communities address two problems, the loss of manufacturing jobs and inadequate access to health care facilities. Between 2003 and 2011, the tax credit delivered $536 million to rural health care facilities. According to the report, new market tax credits helped fund the development of 68 rural health care facilities or clinics during that time. In addition, the tax credit has helped many rural communities create or retain manufacturing jobs by providing manufacturing financing for new facilities and equipment. Between 2003 and 2011, the credit delivered more than $1.4 billion in project financing to 110 rural manufacturing projects. Furthermore, 18% of new market tax credit projects in rural communities involve manufacturing. To read the report, go to www.newmarketscredits.com. And also, if you have any questions about using new market tax credits in rural areas, please contact my partner, Annette Stevenson, in our Cleveland, Ohio office. In state-level news, a bill to establish a California state new markets tax credit program is scheduled for consideration in the Senate Appropriations Committee on August 4th. The bill would create a $200 million state new market tax credit that would be in effect for taxable years 2015 through 2027. The credit would be worth 39% of qualified investments in small and medium-sized businesses in low-income areas. The California Competes Tax Credit Committee would be in charge of allocating up to $40 million in tax credit authority annually with two funding rounds per year. And, as proposed, the credit would be non-transferable and non-refundable. If lawmakers enact the bill, California will join more than a dozen other states that already have their own state new market tax credit programs. After the August 4th Senate Appropriations Committee hearing, it's unclear when the bill would go to the full Senate for consideration, but we'll keep you updated. In the meantime, you can find a copy of AB 1399 at www.newmarketscredits.com. And if you have any other questions, please contact my partner, Owen Gray, in our San Francisco office at 415-356-8000. Next, let's turn to low-income housing tax credit news. The Department of the Treasury has invited public comment on a form that state and local agencies use to notify the IRS of noncompliance issues at low-income housing tax credit properties. The IRS uses Form 8823 to determine whether the low-income housing tax credit is being claimed properly, and if not, whether there should be credit recapture. 
At this time, no revisions have been made to the form itself. However, the total number of burden hours associated with this information collection was reduced by 69,000 hours to 303,200 hours. The IRS will accept written comments until September 15, 2014. And you can also rest assured here that Longfusing Tax Credit Working Group will be submitting comments. Please forward your suggestions to my partner, Stacy Stewart, in our Dover, Ohio office. And you can go to www.taxcredithousing.com to find additional information in the July 15th Federal Register on the notice. And if you have any specific questions about the form or compliance issues, I encourage you to contact my partner, Jim Kroger, in our San Francisco office. Now, I'd like to discuss something that I tweeted about last week, the Housing Trust Fund. As you may recall, the National Housing Trust Fund was created in July 2008 as part of the Housing and Economic Recovery Act of 2008, or HERA. The HTF is meant to give formula grants to states to fund affordable housing. Most of the grants would be for affordable rental housing that targets extremely low-income households. HERA required Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to make annual contributions to the fund. However, HERA also instructed the Director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, or FHFA, to suspend the contributions in times of financial difficulty. Well, before any contributions were made, the obligation to make such contributions was suspended when Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac went into government conservatorship in September 2008. As such, to this day, no contributions have been made to the fund. When Mel Watt became FHFA director in January, there was great anticipation that Watt would lift the suspension and require Fannie and Freddie to make contributions. Watt had strongly supported the HTF for many years, and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's financial condition has greatly improved. Watt, however, has given no indication that he plans to lift the suspension anytime soon. Additionally, the FHFA is undertaking a thorough legal analysis of the director's suspension authority, and it's unclear when such analysis will be concluded. It is widely believed that Watt won't take any action until the analysis is finished. Another stumbling block, by the way, is that the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, has yet to issue final housing trust fund regulations. HUD would need to issue regulations before states would receive any HTF allocations. Proposed regulations were issued back in 2010, and the final regulations are currently pending an Office of Management and Budget, or OMB, review. Newly confirmed OMB director and previous HUD secretary, Sean Donovan, is expected to help expedite consideration of the final regulations. Many affordable housing advocates expect that Watt's decision on the suspended HTF contributions will coincide with the release of the final HTF regulations. Based on recent estimates of Fannie and Freddie's new business purchases, they would contribute roughly $520 million to the HTF. Congress also has considered bipartisan housing finance reform legislation this year that would actually change the contributions under HERA. Under that legislation, Fannie and Freddie's successor agencies would contribute to the funds. Such contributions, as they apply to a, lar- to a greater volume as well as more than twice the percentage of mortgage debt, are estimated to produce $3.75 billion annually for the HTF. The Senate Banking Committee approved such legislation in May, but the House Financial Services Committee reported version of housing finance reform actually calls for eliminating the housing trust fund. In any event, it's unlikely that housing finance reform legislation will advance any farther this year, and it's even more unlikely that it will be enacted this year. However, 
it is likely that the Senate Banking Committee-approved bill will serve as a model for future housing finance reform. I'd like to wrap up today's Local Housing Tax Credit News with some information about the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits Developments of Distinction Awards. The awards honor exemplary properties that were developed with Local Housing Tax Credits or U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development funding. The properties must have had a meaningful and major impact on their community, demonstrated financial innovation, or overcome significant obstacles in their development. Awards were given in four categories. Major community impact, overcoming significant obstacles, financial innovation, and preserving affordable housing. Now, properties must have been placed in service in 2013 or 2014 to qualify for this year's awards. And I note that anyone can nominate a property for consideration. You don't necessarily have to be associated directly or indirectly with the property. And nominations will be accepted until September 4th. Now, if you'd like to nominate a property, you can find submission materials online at www.novoco.com awards. Now, some renewable energy tax credit news. The U.S. Energy Information Administration recently released its annual energy market forecast. The report presents long-term annual projections of supply, demand, and prices of energy through the year 2040. Through a couple of different case projections, it found that, not surprisingly, extending the investment and production tax credits indefinitely would result in renewable energy growth. It compared a couple of different scenarios. In one case, the solar investment credit at 30% and the production tax credit would be extended indefinitely. In the other case, the production tax credit stays expired and the solar investment tax credit reverts to a 10% credit in 2016 as scheduled under current law. Now, comparing the two different scenarios, The report found that extending the tax credits could increase distributed generation output to 59 billion kilowatt hours in 2025. That's more than double the 25 billion kilowatt hours estimated to be provided without the tax credits. On-site generation could also increase to 145 billion kilowatt hours by the year 2040 if the tax credits were extended. And that's nearly triple the amount that could be generated if the tax credits were allowed to expire. For solar generation in particular, extending the investment tax credit at 30% could lead to a 12% increase in output every year until 2040. You can find a copy of Annual Energy Outlook 2014 at www.energytaxcredits.com. And if you have any further questions, please contact my partner, Stephen Tracy, in our San Francisco office. In state historic tax credit news, I have an update on the Wisconsin Historic Preservation Tax Credit Program. Frequent listeners will recall that the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation placed a moratorium on the credit late last month. The moratorium was placed on the state credit because of higher-than-expected demand for the credit. Well, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker recently announced that the moratorium will be lifted. The Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation reviewed the application process and determined that it could lift the moratorium on the Certified Historic Buildings Program. This is because of the rigorous review process that these properties are subject to from the State Historic Preservation Office and the National Park Service, that according to a press release from the Office of the Governor of Wisconsin. Projects that qualify for the credit must be listed in the National or State Register of Historic Places, or they must be deemed historic by the Wisconsin Historical Society. I'd like to point out that the moratorium is not, that's not been lifted on non-historic developments built prior to 1936. 
the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation will also begin collecting additional information under the Historic Preservation Tax Credit Program with regards to the return on investment to the state. It will collect information on projected employment, wages, investments that's leveraged, local participation, tax impact, and other information. To learn more about the Wisconsin Historic Preservation Tax Credit and other state historic tax credit programs, go to www.historictaxcredits.com. And if you have any questions, I encourage you to contact my partner, Michael Kresig, in our St. Louis, Missouri office. In other state historic tax credit news, I have an update on North Carolina's Historic Preservation Tax Credit Program. Frequent listeners will recall that North Carolina's historic tax credit is set to expire at the end of this year and that the General Assembly did not include an extension of the credit in its original 2015 budget proposals. When that happened, the governor put forth a proposal to include an amended program in the budget, and historic preservation advocates urged the Assembly to include some form of historic tax credit program in the budget. By mid-June, the House had amended the 2015 budget bill to include the state tax credit. Well, the governor refused to sign that bill. Now, the House and Senate are reviewing the budget bill in a conference committee and working with the governor to craft a bill that everyone can agree on. So what does it mean for the store tax credit? Well, it leaves it in limbo. Now, the fight on the budget is over teacher pay raises and other issues not collect- connected to the historic tax credit program. But the historic tax credit may be eliminated simply because the state legislature is looking to simplify the tax code and lower taxes. This according to the North Carolina's historic Wilmington Foundation. And according to Capital Area Preservation, another historic preservation organization in North Carolina, a finalized budget is expected any time now. At this point, stakeholders are just hoping that the historic tax credit remains in the budget. As long as it is included in the budget, the specifics of the program can always be amended later, according to Capital Area Preservation. I'll be sure to provide an update on the state tax credit as soon as the budget is finalized. And to learn more about North Carolina's Historic Preservation Tax Credit or any other state historic tax credit program, go to www.historictaxcredit.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. Next week, I'll be discussing an audit of Delaware's compliance with the regulations that govern the Section 1602 Low Income Housing Tax Credit Exchange Program as well as a North Carolina bill that would create a state New Markets Tax Credit program. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archive discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.